Black Talk Media Project would like to invite you to become a member of the BTR Community subscription-based social media platform. BTR Community is a platform that was set up for the listening audience of Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black radio network online. For just $24 per year, your subscription gives you access to an interactive space to share information with like-minded people with your privacy guaranteed. Your subscription will go a long way to help us maintain and improve our current media platforms. It will also help provide a budget so that we can begin the task of establishing localized media centers and radio stations across the United States. The best way to show your support and appreciation for what we do here at Black Talk Radio is to subscribe. Help us to help you be informed. Join btrcommunity.com today. The views and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared, if his protection is gone and your enemies are near, if you've seen the seas spill over and the mountains shake, break, and fall, if the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all, rise up, no matter if the prize Welcome to New Abolitionist Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century legalized slavery. Hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parkas and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is the March 21st, 2018 broadcast in our sixth season. On and near this day in history, on March 21st, 1965, the Selma to Montgomery March began in the name of African American voting rights. 3,200 civil rights demonstrators in Alabama, led by Martin Luther King Jr., began a historic march from Selma to Montgomery, the state's capital. Life magazine, in their cover image, dubbed it the Savage Season. Our abolitionist in profile tonight is Peter Williams Jr., clergyman, abolitionist, an opponent of colonial, colonization who was born in New, New Brunswick, New Jersey around 1780. In the segment, For Freedom's Sake, A History of Rebellion, we remember the March 21, 1960 massacre in the black township of Sharpville near Johannesburg, South Africa. 
our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is Eric Kelly and Ralph Lee. On March 3rd, 2018, a Patterson, New Jersey, my hometown, appeals court upheld a lower court ruling and has vacated their 1996 murder conviction based on DNA identifying another suspect. As usual, we'll dissect and disseminate current news and events related to 13th Amendment slavery from the perspectives of slavery abolitionists. Our plan is to show you the truth and nothing but the truth so you can recognize what the real problem looks like. So let's get started. Got a question or a comment? You can call us at 704-802-5026. You can chat with us and others by logging in at uberconference.com slash Black Talk Radio Network. Once again, I'm Max Parthas. What's happening, Brother Scotty? Hey, Max. How are you tonight? Oh, man, I'm so stressed out. Like, really stressed out. Um, yeah, so in the chat, uh, what's going on with your moms? I didn't hear about that. What's what's up with that? Well, let me put a, a little preface on it. Uh, from the time I was born till I was about 14 years old, I was raised by my great aunt. She herself Grace Brown, was raised by former slaves who had escaped from the South to the North to live in Jersey, and they raised her. So, like, the connection to slavery with me is so damn close. She's 94 years old now, and uh, she's got cancer in both breasts, and they called me yesterday morning and told me she could go at any moment. And I'm here in South Carolina, my wife's in Providence, and she's in upstate New York, so, yeah, it's, it's frustrating. And I'm just sitting by the phone waiting to hear what happened. What's happening, you know? Well, like Otis said in our chat room at uberconference.com slash Black Talk Radio Network, you know, we sending prayers up, man, for your family. Thank you. She is the matriarch of our family. And uh, as I said, man, the connection, so much history to be lost. But yeah, but, anyway, man, but, we've got a lot of... Yes, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, Max, you know, just hearing you, and which I already knew this, your... Um, how you could trace your lineage to victims of slavery here on American soil and others as well, um, like your wife, Tribal Rain, when we talk about Paul Coffey. But I'm, I'm letting you know, I'm already coming into the broadcast frustrated by Afrophobia, um, also known as anti-blackness, and, you know, we hear a lot about Holocaust denial, but there's a, there is a undercurrent of denial of the, the human trafficking trade, which they call the transatlantic slave trade, but I don't want, you know, I want to use more uh, correct language that recognize the humanity of the victims. And there's a lot of people that want to deny that, man. They want to deny that history. And we're not even talking about ancient history. And I don't know. I, I just don't understand where this is coming from. Um, when you have oral histories, when people like yourself um, can can check the census records, the family Bibles, and, and already done the research and know that they had an ancestor that came out of uh, pre-1865 slavery and some of us even can trace it back to, you know, uh, Africa. But to to deny that those people came 
um, or even existed is really what you're doing just so you can prove a political or ideological or religious point that you believe that what you call black people and what is generally recognized as black people aka African Americans that that we should not identify with that history because we was already here and, and you know and we want to debate stuff that happened several several centuries ago uh, of some people that don't even exist in, in the uh, pre- uh, presently in the form that they might have existed back then. When you get conquered, you get absorbed. Okay, you get absorbed. You get your 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 genes get blended, and so that is just very disturbing to me, man. I'm gonna try to do more to address it and bring on uh, hysteria historians. And but I don't even have to bring on historians. It's like telling me that Frederick Douglass, Sojourner True. All of these abolitionist writers, like they participated in some grand fraud to pull the wool over our eyes about what slavery was about. These are people who lived it and not only left oral records, but a written record. And to to suggest that all of that is part of some grand fraud that would have to involve thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of people to concoct this fraud to do what? To prove what? To do what? Scotty, it's, you have answered a question for me that I had before I came on air tonight. I it's just very I frustrating the, to me, Max, and I, I'll, I'll stop I rambling. I understand, brother, and I, I feel the same way often. Uh, and as I said, you answered the question for me. In my research, I uncovered a speech by a gentleman by the name of William P. Powell, who's a black abolitionist, during the Civil War period. And as you know, a lot of our ancestors, the only thing that left of, is left of them is maybe a speech that they did somewhere, and we don't know what else they did. But I found this speech, and it sounded like he was talking about us today. And as the way I like to learn is I don't want to hear what the historian said. I want to read what the people who were there at the time said, saw, and thought in their own words. And I do that often. And what I did with this particular abolitionist speech is I recited it on audio. It's probably the first time that's ever been done with his words, and very likely the first time his words have been repeated in over 150 years. Um, We should listen to that, Scotty, and then maybe have some commentary about it afterwards along with callers. Yeah, do you have it available? Yes, it's in our planning page as well as at the top of New Abolitionist Radio on Facebook. It says, abolitionist William P. Powell, in time of war, there is no law. Uh, It's profound, the things that he say. And remember, this is a man who was there, experiencing it, talking about it as it happened. And that's where I get my information. And, And my point is also, it don't matter to me who his great, 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 great grandparents was, or whether they came from Africa, or whether they was already here. We're talking about a system of slavery that's still impacting us today. And what? why do we want to cause division and expect everybody to identify the way we identify, but then you want to talk about some we, when we all don't have the same lineage. We all don't have the same same views. We all are ancestrally do not, uh, our ancestors did not take the uh, uh, same paths to this oppression that we know today. 
So it, it's just ridiculous to me, man. But I'm pulling it up. You say it's on our Facebook page. Yes, it's uh, the, the first one up. Uh, I mean, I equate it to Holocaust. What the Jews call is Holocaust denial. It's Afrophobia. I think that you will definitely have some things to say about this once you hear it. And I hope you guys don't mind, but it's me reciting it. And I figured since I'm a poet, this is something I can do to honor my ancestors and to help bring the words back to life. Now, you are a a war-winning spoken word artist. Why would we mind if you uh, use those talents to... uh, Put the, bring this man's words to life, this abolitionist words to life. Uh, I'm 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 looking forward. Max is uh, called abolitionist William P. Powell. Yes, yes, sir. That's the okay. One. I got the it. Pulling it up on so YouTube long. right now. Yeah, and we also have uh, all these videos available at our BTR community. So we got free memberships. You can try it for free for a month. You can't go wrong with that. Just come on in. You know, get out of Facebook for a while and uh, don't worry about Facebook jail anymore. Join us at BTR community and go through all the stuff that we provide there on a regular basis. All right, Max, I got it queued up. A speech by William P. Powell, abolitionist, published in The Liberator, October 18th, 1861. The speaker addressed a recent essay noting that slavery had become morally and ethically understood in the U.S. as Negro slavery. In this sense, only one form of slavery was right and any other form of slavery was considered wrong. The government could then condone enslaving one segment of humanity and denounce and abhor enslaving any other. If slavery was admissible, he argued, then enslaving white people should be admissible as well. He also addressed the current conception that slaves were content in their condition. Fellow citizens, it is with no small degree of pleasure we give our consent to preside over the deliberations of this patriotic assembly because we believe that it is the duty of every citizen of whatever complexion, however humble, to throw the whole weight of his influence on the side of the government under which he lives, because notwithstanding the invidious distinctions so prevalent all over the country against our race, for no color of crime, but for the crime of color. We equally feel the burden of our country's trouble in common with our heretofore highly favored fellow countrymen, because the signs of the time clearly indicate that the non-slave-owning states are now reaping the bitter fruits of their base servility to the interests of the slave power. Because to use the language of another, if you fasten a chain on the ankle of another, a retributive providence will surely fasten the other end around your own neck. If the doctrine of enforced unrequited labor is a holy thought and wholesome thought, then it is right to enslave white as well as black men. What's good sauce for the goose is most certainly sauce for the gander. If it is right to enslave black men in South Carolina under the U.S. Constitution, then it is right to enslave white laborers in Massachusetts and put them, their wives, and their children on the auction block and sell them to the highest bidder. The Richmond Inquirer thus speaks on this topic. Until recently, the defense of slavery has labored under great difficulties because its apologists, for they were mere apologists, took halfway ground. They confirmed the defense of slavery to 
mere Negro slavery, giving up the slavery principle and admitting other forms of slavery to be wrong. The line of defense, however, is now changed. The South maintains that slavery is right, natural, and necessary, and does not depend upon differences of complexion. The laws of the slave states sustain the holding of white men in bondage. Ex-Senator Downs of Louisiana thus spoke. He said, I call upon the opponents of slavery to prove that the white laborers of the North are as happy, as contented, as comfortable as the slaves of the South. In the South, the slaves do not suffer one-tenth of the ills endured by the white laborers of the North. Poverty is unknown to the Southern slaves. For as soon as the masters of slaves become too poor to provide for them, he sells them to the others who can take care of them. This, sir, is one of the excellencies of the system of slavery, and this, the superior condition of the slave over the northern white laborer. Now listen, such fellow citizens are declared purposes of the lords of the lash. We, as uncompromising abolitionists, contend that chattel slavery is a violation of man's inherent God-given right, that no system, custom, tradition, usage, precedent framed into law except for crime is a justification for the enslavement of any of God's children. The election of Abraham Lincoln to the presidency is only a pretext for secession. The great contest now going on all over the country, disguise it as we may, is between slavery and freedom. Slavery sectional, freedom national. Also, the disintegration of this American Union, now almost divided North and South, the one by God's blessing to be forever free, and the other slave only for a season, till the Negro Goths and Vandals, like the white slaves of classic Rome, wipe out the accursed sin in rivers of blood. Of course, we are all deeply sensible of the existence of this terrible war terrible in its brutality as well as destructive in its ravages. The revolution of 1776 was nothing in comparison with this of 1861. Then it was only against duty levied on tea and the Stamp Act, insignificant of themselves, which the colonies successfully resisted. Now, the final struggle is that the South slave states not satisfied with the pro-slavery guarantees of the U.S. Constitution, which for 82 years has secured them their property in human flesh, now demand greater security for the preservation of Negro slavery. Of the African slave trade shall be legalized all over the American continent by unalterable law forever. Never in the history of our unfortunate country have the stars and stripes been held in greater veneration by abolitionists, even by colored men then, now. For one, I must confess that heretofore I have held in utter contempt the United States flag, because it gave us no protection, and have often explained in the language of the poet Campbell, United States, your banner wears two emblems, one of fame, Alas, the other that it bears remind us of your shame. The white man's liberty in types stands blazing by your stars. But what's the meaning of your stripes? They mean your Negro scars. But now the stars and stripes, with the exception of 15 slavery stars, which are rapidly approximating to the sun center of the world's political progress and soon to be lost in the 
immensity of freedom space never looked more beautiful, more hopeful. It represents, in this fearful crisis, the express will of the free states, the total annihilation of Negro slavery. Fellow citizens, I believe that God's own time, long wished for, has now come. Slavery must come to an end, and that speedily, whether by bloody massacre, exterminating the slave owner, or by peaceful means. God only knows, but by whatever means, in God's name, let it come. The great change now witnessed all over the free states is truly encouraging. Pro-slavery, flunkyites, old-line Whigs, Democrats, political abolitionists, Garrisonians, Republicans, disenfranchised colored Americans and non-residents all buy for with each other in support of the government and look up to the stars and stripes as the John the Baptist of the slaves coming redeemer and will defend it in whatever way their own convictions of duty may dictate to the bitter end. We regret the necessity which caused this extraordinary distinctive meeting. It should not be so. It is no fault of ours that we are not this day mixed in this imminent deadly breach. It is no fault of ours that we are not standing shoulder to shoulder in battle array with men of the North to put down the rebellion of the South. It is no fault of ours that we are standing still with folded arms whilst government is straining every nerve in the maintenance of its legitimate constitutional authority. We stand now on the same broad ground of our common humanity where our fathers stood in 1776 and 1812 and are ready and willing to follow their illustrious patriot example. But why should government stand halting between two opinions? Why hesitate and stoop to pander to the sickly sentimentalities of conscience and the Constitution? If custom makes law, then the past history of this country's struggle fully justifies government calling into active service every muscle without regard to the texture of the hair which adorns the head or the color of the cuticle which covers the body we are not begging this question neither do we mean to rummage among the musty pages of history to find a precedent upon which to hang a doubt neither do we care for legal or illegal technicalities or constitutional prohibitions these all sink into insignificance as compared to the fearful exigencies into which the country is now plunged there is law a higher law if you please a law as old as the bible in time of war there is no law this law should be more particularly be now enforced to the very letter because the nation is at war with itself to put down high treason backed up by 800,000 slave-owning rebels against 27,700,000 freemen and the Constitution authorities in time of war there is no law only the law of superior force it is only when the rebels are whipped into submission and sue for peace that their sober second thought will be made to obey the powers that be ordained in the form of physical force. Hence, we advocate this law of necessity because it obviates the slow process of doubtful legislation. Proclaim this law and 50,000 able-bodied men of our race will not wait to be t asked to take up arms to defend the liberties of the country. Proclaim this law of liberty and 4 million of our race will rise up from the sleep of death 
and leap into the front ranks of freemen, proclaim this law of strength, and our country will not present the shameful spectacle to the sneering gaze of the world as being too weak to defend herself without foreign aid. Proclaim this law of retaliation, and we shall have given the rebels in exchange a rolling for an Oliver. Proclaim this law of righteousness, and this afflicted but we trust repentant nation will then have vindicated the cause of truth, justice, and liberty. Mr. Powell's remarks were received with considerable applause. October 18, 1861, William P. Powell, Abolitionist, published in The Liberator. All right, Scotty. So a number of things come to mind, and fabulous job, Max. Thank you. Again, you didn't win a war for anything. Thank you for bringing Mr. Powell's uh, words to life there. Um, I'm going to keep my focus narrow in, in the context of how I came on to the program talking about this alternative history. Um, this, I think they call it the Ma'afa is how they describe the African Holocaust for the Ma'afa, yeah. Okay, we had these Ma'afa deniers out there, man. And it's okay if you want to identify with some quote-unquote indigenous people that was always here centuries and centuries and centuries ago. And that's okay. That's your right as you claim to be a sovereign and self-determining. But when you start telling black people that and, and referring to us as part of some we collective that you are part of, but then you telling black people that what all you learned about slavery is incorrect and, and whatnot, and they, quote unquote, it's always they, have taught you a bunch of lies about who you are. Look, again, uh, who you researched and found out you to be, I'm not disputing that, but for people to to insult our intelligence to believe that Mr. William P. Powell did not exist, all right? Never said any of those words. Did not exist, all right, during the 1800s, and I was taking particular note. He referred to himself, he, he self-identified as black, and let me also, let me back up a moment. This is who he was. William P. Powell was one of only 13 black surgeons to serve during the Civil War, and this was out of more than 12,000 in the Union Army. Powell was born free, and as I've always, I'm saying to these people the same thing I say to other people, that what we call black, the black community, all of our history, all of us are not descendants of slaves. There was a sizable free population, and I'm telling these other people that want to they say, "Well, we indigenous, we something else. We we ain't got nothing to do with Africa." I call it Afrophobia. You don't want to be African. Nobody forcing you to, but don't be talking trash to other people who do identify with Africa, cause this ain't fake history right here. William P. Powell was real. You just he was also not only a doctor, but he was a journalist. You just Max just read. You know, his words to you there. The Liberator is a well-known, established newspaper. These people did not participate 
in no conspiracy to misinform people about slavery in any fashion in this country. Again, it was never abolished. And it's not like, you know, the people you talking about centuries and centuries ago. No, we ain't got to go there. We can just go 200 years. Okay? That's just that's just two centuries and, and four or 500 years. A documented history. And for somebody to tell me this is all fake history and it was this global conspiracy to trick black people in America to, to think that some of them are from Africa when they all was right right there. I just can't entertain that nonsense. I can't entertain it because there's two and, and you can't just cite one book to me of some author I ain't never heard of or say this new information. Well, this new information has to stack up against a mountain of information that the African slave trade happened. As you heard Mr. Powell refer to it. Did he not say the African slave trade? Is that what yes. he said? That's what he said. He was talking about them, about the South wanting to reinstitute it all across the American continent. At some points, he also referenced what I thought was the 13th Amendment, or at least some variation of it. Like, you know, it's it's had four or five variations that they proposed, and the one that finally made it was the one we have today. But it sounded like he was referencing that in particular at several points. In, in reference to him calling it by this journalist, this doctor, this Civil War veteran, this abolitionist citing, why would he cite the African slave trade if they wasn't bringing nobody over here from Africa? Or that wasn't a commonly known to be uh, uh, where they came from. Now, we can go back to the 16th century. Uh, we can go back to Bacon's Rebellion when it was everybody was being enslaved until they made it blacks only going back to the Virginia slave codes and what have you. So, so this, my alpha denial, it, it has to be met head on. And with the same fear, fervor that these Jews go at, when you try to deny that 6 million of them wasn't murdered by Hitler. Okay. So, so, but he also referred to himself as black. Okay. I mean, didn't he say he 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 used Negro and black interchangeably? Yes. So yes. again, we get caught up on what people are calling themselves, and we can't see the forest for the trees. Okay, what difference do it make if he call himself a Negro? If he call himself black, we all know who he knows who he's talking about. The readers know who he's talking about. The most oppressed people on the planet. If you want to claim some whopper hopping tribe or, or something like that's your right but don't act like all of us is, uh, is, is part of that indigenous tribe you claiming when all, all of this evidence to the contrary like Mr. Powell is some imaginary figure and the liberator didn't exist and they didn't publish articles on slavery it's just absolutely ridiculous, but I'm not going to ramble on. I'm not even going to bring it up anymore during the rest of the broadcast. But in my other writings and whatnot and reaching out to some guests, I will be tackling this my alpha uh, denial that's raising this ugly head in the black community. I got enemies, got a lot of enemies, got a lot of people trying to take me from my energy. I think oh, Otis wants to chime in. Um 
as the phone lines are open, uh, as you stated, Max, um, Otis. Feel free to uh, chime in. Just press star, star to unmute yourself. What's up, Otis? Good good evening, gentlemen. What's up, Max? What's up? Look, uh, I'm I'm with Scotty on this one. I'm going to piggyback off of a conversation I listened to the other day on, on his platform. I started researching, and I was surprised when Max came up with this presentation from some of the research I found. I had another document on WMT Powell because it refreshed my memory over something else I'd done in the past. I'm just going to read a short passage because, like Scotty says, these people keep saying there's no history, but I tried to make the point that personally, because I'm here in Yorktown, Virginia, I'm barely 20 miles from the uh, Women Mary College, which is one of the oldest colleges in this nation, and they have an archive. But I was trying to explain to the people over the phone the other night, part of the reason, quote, we don't have a history is because we already know the majority white population was teaching us history. We didn't have access to the actual records, and I'm going to just read a short clip to the point I was trying to make. More than 180,000 African Americans, some freeborn, some escaped slaves, served in the Union Army during the Civil War. But only 13 of them tended to the wounded as surgeons. William P. Powell Jr. was one of the first African American physicians to receive a contract as a surgeon with the U.S. Army. Now, this is in the archives in the records of the yes. Department of Veterans Affairs. This isn't my imagination or story being told. This is from the records of the U.S. Army in the archives, in the national archives of this nation in Washington, D.C. Few personal accounts by these surgeons exist, and much of their story has remained hidden, but many clues exist in the thousands of documents and records in the National Archives. By piecing together these clues from existing medical personal records, contract surgeon records, pension files, and other records, their stories are starting to emerge and their voices can be heard. And Dr. Ger- Professor Gerald Horn out of the University of Houston has said this repeatedly. Up until the last 20 years, black scholars did not even have access to the actual records. So these, when people start talking about it's not true, it's not, it didn't happen, no. Most of, our, most of us that were enslaved are on a manifest for some boat or transaction or sale or part of some evidence when the slave owner went to a bank to to get money, we were property. Stop saying that our our heritage is not true. I hear you on that, Otis. You know, from a personal perspective, just for instance, the cover photo that I use today for our promotions for New Abolitionist Radio was me in the oldest free and enslaved African uh, cemetery in America. It's called God's Little Acre, and it's out in Newport, Rhode Island. We were there during a rededication. I was there reading the, the these uh, tombstones and what they said when they buried them, and looking at the shame of it all in plots where tombstones broke out the ground like flower bushes because entire families were buried in one hole. Uh, so, you know, these are things that you could touch and feel that I've touched and felt and I know they happen because I was there to see these things and, and feel them. The same thing with the directly reading the words, thanks to the Black Abolitionist Archive, of these people who may have only made that one speech that you were aware, we weren't aware of. 
their lives were normal lives. He was a doctor, you know what I mean? Uh, it may be abnormal that he was one of only six doctors, black doctors in the entire armed forces, but he was just living his normal life. And through 13. his normal life, he was be, uh, an abolitionist trying to get something done. And who knows, probably a participant or funder of the Underground Railroad. Very likely. He, doctors was making some money back then. Black doctors weren't making as much as white doctors, there's no doubt about that, but it was definitely a prestigious position. And he used his uh, position wisely. Well, Max, I just add the picture you showed in the in the documents from the National Archives, it, it says the rarity of having a picture of him. It talks about that. I'd put it in the in the chat room. But it talks about the fact that he's one of the few people that they could even get. He was age 29 years old when, in that picture that you were talking about. And yeah. part of the reason they can do it is because he also was involved in some kind of court disputes. So even those records are there to verify what happened. And, you know, back to what Scotty said earlier about having these free communities. It's true. Like here in Charleston near me, there was one of the oldest and largest free communities that still exist to this day, free black communities. And... Um, I just wonder, where did they come from? Because, like, were they always free? Or were these people who had gained their freedom and built a, a, a community together? Did they come from Africa free and build that community? I, I'm not so sure that's how it worked out. I think at one time, they were uh, involved in the slave trade somehow, some way, or an ancestor of theirs. And or they, they could have immigrated from the UK. They could have immigrated from the UK because, again, you know, uh, That's our possible too. Yeah. yeah, our people are all over the world, all over and, the world. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. But I was no, going no, to say, answer. if you look at the records of the Revolutionary War, what is a black colonist? A black colonist is somebody who has permission from the king to come here and settle here. You know what I'm saying? So they had to do that by way. You know what I'm saying? So well, there were several ways. I mean, I'm, when I tell you I'm in a very historic place, I'm here in Yorktown, Virginia, where that's only about 14 miles away from Jamestown, which they claim the landing was. But even even when Max was talking about the plaque in Gloucester, I'm two miles from the bridge and I cross over into Gloucester County. And right. manumission was another form of freedom, using other slaves once you provided an act that saved the slave owners or kept the other slaves in 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 the order. So there's several different routes that black exactly, exactly. and if they didn't have it once they were enslaved. But Max brought up the free community in South Carolina, and I'm in one of the oldest uh, considered free black communities. If you want to consider it, you know, you might be one of those black people that don't consider quote unquote mulattoes to be black, um, but I do. Okay, if that's how they identify. So anyway, you mentioned South Carolina. Now, I, t I think I mentioned to you, Max, about freedom. Right there in Mount Holly, little section, little community called Freedom in Mount Holly. Documented, and, and this has been a big deal around here over the, I ain't going to say a big, big deal, but the city has recognized this black family as being descendants of um, Hunter, oh man, I'm forgetting his name right now. Hunter Ransom was his name. And they have documented how this man was kidnapped from the coast of West Africa when he was 16 years old, came across that water in the hold of a ship, 
just like any other piece of property can be transported in the hold of a ship, sold in Charleston, South Carolina, after the Civil War, made his way to Gaston County, North Carolina, one of the few counties in the South, I would say, that allowed former victims of slavery to own property, and he bought property, set it up so that other black uh, victims of slavery could come here and farm and be, you know, free from terrorism and, and sharecropping and all that stuff. And, you know, the city just recognizing that that history, you know, honored this family with a little plaque. And this dude became what was known as a real estate uh, boss around here. What they call him real estate mogul. They, his name is on so many different deeds in uptown Mount Holly because he owned all these different businesses and he was buying and selling real estate. So, so don't tell, don't tell me that that people didn't come from Africa because I, I I can go talk to some descendants of an African victim of slavery right now. There are other uh, groups who shared the diaspora in the same exact way, although slightly different because of who they were or what they were, and they're all part of this same uh, common shared history that we have. For instance, my family was called the Jackson Whites. They were basically people who had either escaped slavery, Native American uh, tribes who had been decimated, and the remaining members tried to find some place to rebuild, uh, uh, Dutch immigrants who were too poor to do anything, basically, and, you know, it's poor, white trash, all living together in a community out in Marwall, New Jersey, or Marwall, New York, I'm sorry. And uh, they helped build this community, and, and the tribe, they called them the Jackson Whites. But when you read the historical uh, references about them, it's incredibly insulting. They called them inbred retards, and uh, some of the poorest of the poor who didn't deserve to be in society. And, I mean, really just terrible things they said about these human beings who were the results of their actions. They were the results of their actions. These were the last survivors of freaking genocide, trying to find a place to live. And the history books called them inbred retards and people too poor to interact with society or, or, or people that just can't read or write or just stupid and they would talk about how they were mixed breeds that's the results of a crime that is not something they chose to be or do or, or live at that's what you left for them so the stories say they were cannibals and if you came up into their area they would eat your ass and it might be true because they may not eat you but they damn sure would kill you because they had been fed Imagine living like that, where you got nothing, just the land you live on, and people are trying to take that. Well, anyway, that's a reminiscent there. <laughs> we got a, a number of things that I want to go into, possibly tonight, a couple of videos too, Sky Reed. You know, we have these people, like you were talking about and frustrated about, who are dividing our attentions uh, by trying to get us to identify how they want us to identify. And, and that's really not going to work at all. But at the same time, we have people who are in denial, as you mentioned. Even those who call themselves allies are in denial. One of the people, for example, and I don't think he's in denial, but I, as I said last week, I think that he is catering to a certain group. 
um, and that is Sean King. We also talked about the video with her, uh, with uh, my sister Hannah X and Sean King, where she asked him some questions about the abolitionist movement. And I found that video. So let's take a listen to it and you'll see what I've been trying to express here and what Scotty's talking about, uh, where people are denying certain things. I mean, they say one thing and do another. It's complete denial. So Scotty, if, if you can, uh, should I, where do you want me to put the video? It's already in the forum, but in case you can't find it, should I just put it as the last thing again? You can uh, start posting them in the chat if that's uh, possible. That'd be okay, the I remember way. you telling me that if you click something in the chat room, a link. Yeah, I know how to do it now. The... You got to hold down the control key. There you go. This is the uh, conversation between Hannah X uh, out in Ohio, abolitionist out in Ohio, and Sean King. Uh, where she addressed him about the topic of abolition. Uh, Scotty will cue it up and then we'll go ahead and listen to it. And then after that, I want to listen, us to listen to another uh, discussion. I'm with the George Jackson University. Um, we just did a radio show with Ramona Africa earlier today and look at today. I, I don't know what to do. Right now there's a nationwide prisoners movement. That mug you have is for the Million Prisoners March on Washington, August 2017. This movement is, was given birth to people from people like you. You have created a legacy that we can now push. Um, the gentlemen from the SHU who were validated as gang members are the chief leaders now out of the SHU for this movement. Here comes the big question. How are we going to take the loophole out of the 13th Amendment and abolish slavery? Thank you so much for your work and thank you for the, the, the mug. Um, in prison slavery, um, the 13th Amendment and that loophole, uh, and, you know, it's quite interesting. If you read um, that particular uh, amendment to the Constitution of the United States of America, that is always represented to us as the amendment that abolished slavery, right? Um, and what does it say? Yeah, it says, Slavery and involuntary servitude shall be abolished. But the point is, you can't even abolish an institution like that with three words. So that the loophole that allowed for slavery among those who shall have been duly, quote, duly convicted of, of a crime and became the space from which an entire punishment industry uh, developed uh, um, is um, that no that loophole is um, the loophole of racism mm. it is not it not only helps us to understand why we have such a massive uh, prison industrial complex today, mm. but it helps us to understand how racism is still so central uh, to this country. Um, 
And that the work that should have been done in the aftermath of the so-called abolition of slavery uh, would have involved addressing uh, the ways in which structural racism. I think we're just now beginning to recognize that the problem is not so much that this person uh, thinks that you know black people or Latinos are, are whatever. But rather, it is the extent to which the, all of our major institutions incorporate this racism, regardless of what people think or don't think. And the, the institution of the prison is the most obvious example of structural racism uh, in the country. And what we have to do is abolish it. What we have to do is get rid of it. That's right. What we have to Look do, what we have to do is to That's be able roots. to imagine a society that no longer needs prisons. That's right. That's right. And so this is why we need education. This is why we need health care. This is why we need mental health care. Yes. The three largest mental institutions yes. in the country are jails, are county jails. Ah. So let's start this process, uh, and let's let's make it possible to have serious, courageous conversations about the abolition of prisons. Yes. <laughs> Hello, hi, Angela. My name is Mildred Center. I'm really, really. Hey, Scotty. I think that's it, man. That was the one I, I wanted to hear. All right. First, let me apologize. Uh, I had two clips to play. This was the other one. This was Sister Layla Aziz, who has uh, sometime host here on New Abolitionist Radio, speaking with Angela Davis. And uh, you could hear what the conversation went on. It started with Layla Aziz explaining that the New Abolitionist Movement was here and working and that a Millions for Prisoners March was coming up and what was Angela Davis doing about or thinking about the 13th Amendment and how it causes all of this modern-day slavery. And then you'll see later on, as Miss Davis starts talking, she changes the subject altogether. And, and, and I don't understand why she does this, but she pushes the attention in the direction of prison abolition. She starts out by talking about how this is structural racism. The 13th Amendment is a window for structural racism. But when she turned me into an abolitionist, she wasn't saying that then. She was saying that the 13th Amendment allows for legalized slavery. So how are you saying something different now? That's and like putting the, the cart before the horse. Um, say? To use a, a L, uh, excuse me, to use the old saying, putting the cart before the horse now I understand the argument to abolish prisons but there does have to be somewhere where you remove people too who have committed murders rapes who have violated other people now what we know it doesn't have to be in the form of what we know today as a prison where you're throwing people in, in cages and, and just making it the harshest condition possible um, no but to, to, to switch it to well, let's abolish prisons. Well, you still haven't abolished slavery, though. And you've not even admitted that it exists by saying that. Because now you're saying that this is a mistake, that by abolishing prisons, you can correct the mistake that has been occurring. And that's contrary to what she's always said before. And I don't understand the change. 
nor do I understand why she would redirect people's efforts when she just was told about the Millions for Prisoners Human Rights March into instead prison abolition, as I said, as if it was a mistake that could be fixed. So that's what I mean about... And not addressing the question either. She didn't address the question. She sidestepped. The, The question was, what can we do to remove the exception clause? And she spoke on modern day slavery. Yep. So yeah, these things that confuse me, Scotty, coming from people who we are, we expect are our allies. Like I said, she helped me to become an abolitionist. Now your rhetoric is changing. And the other guy is Sean King. And I spoke about him last week. And I found that clip. That's the other clip that I put in the chat. Listen to that. Hello, my name is Sean King. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. I have a question Thank you. 
is true.
man. Shout out to my sister, Hana uh, Abdul Rahim. And uh, yeah, I've had the blessings of being described as one of her mentors. And she uh, addressed it correctly. And he answered it clearly. He knows exactly what's going on. He said that the problem is we're not using the right language. We're fighting symptoms and uh, not the actual cause. And this is why it confuses me when they don't address it like that in their own circles. Like they're trying to appease somebody. Like you can say that to us because who are we? We're abolitionists. We already believe that. You don't realize maybe that there's a video phone camera that's taping you saying this. But when you get on the New York Times or wherever the hell it is you write for or speak at where people are paying you twenty dollars and $30,000 to speak, you don't have the same things to say. You forget it as soon as you finish talking to that abolitionist. And I don't understand that at all. Like, he just yeah. recently came out with another article talking about how any president that has ever owned people should not be honored. So, yeah, it's confusing, Scotty. All of it. From the moment we started talking tonight about these type of people who are either in denial or won't say it in the right way or refuse to accept things, just it's confusing. Well, I was keying in when he was talking about 200 years of school miseducation concerning slavery and yes. saying it's actually 150 years or 151 or two years um, that great lie. So when I hear people talk about how they don't tell you everything in public education in the United States about slavery, I already know that. <laughs> okay? Um, because they're teaching that slavery was abolished. Um, of course, we all, all schools don't have the same curriculum unless they're in the same county. And I don't recall um, being taught anything about slavery at the predominantly white high school I went to here in Gaston County. I don't recall it coming up, except in the context of, you know, the Civil War was, was uh, you know, the typical story, the Civil War, the Emancipation Proclamation, the Civil War, and then all the black people was free, and that was pretty much it. That was that lesson. None of the deep study of the abolitionist papers, the abolitionist movement, the underground railroad, none of that stuff was brought up. So I've long known that we're, we did not get the full uh, story on slavery uh, in this country. Um, so, you know, we're in agreement there. Uh, but most of my education on slavery did not come from their books. All right. It, it come from records. Um, it comes from looking at the research of other people. It's from reading the words of victims of slavery. Again, we're acting like this was ancient history. 150 years ago, I mean, that's what? Two generations? So, um, yeah. But, yeah, let's continue, Max. Yeah, man. So I don't understand at all, but I, I understand what he was saying there. So I'm just going to work with what he was saying at that time because, you know, people say different things at different times, apparently. But there's a case where he was talking about two Supreme Court cases. He's paying close attention to it, and he wrote his dissertation on the 13th Amendment and on and on. But here's a case that just came out, or it didn't just come out. It's been out a few years, but it shows exactly what's going on and that the courts know it damn well. Uh, that would be the case which is Daniel Lee Vanskike, the plaintiff appellant versus Howard A. Peters, Illinois, defendant Appley 974F.2D806. Yeah, Sean King cited that case. 
He cited that case. In huh? his, uh, Sean King cited that case in his recent article on the NCAA using the 13th Amendment to say, hey, uh, we look at these student athletes as prison slaves, and the 13th says you don't have to pay prison slave labor. It's a ridiculous argument, but it's one that the NCAA lawyers put forth, and Sean King documented it in that article, which I was just sharing with people today on Tanya Free and Friends talk show. I actually, that was the reason why I chose it, because he did, and I was hoping that we would follow this up with the discussion on the NCAA and what's going on right now, because this is March Madness now. So here's the case, and I'll give you the short version of it. Oh, should we take our break first, Scotty, and then do it? Yeah, let's take our break first. We're overdoing, and then you jump right into the details of that case. Okay, you're listening to New Abolitionist Radio with Scotty Reed and Max Parthas. We'll be right back after these messages. Podcast and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, before I go into that case, I just want to give a shout out to Marty Owens. Uh, I was on his program, FM station in Minnesota, St. Paul, Minnesota. You do last know night, Marty helped me, uh, uh, was a part of the. Uh, how should I say, founding group of Black Talk Radio, right? Yes, yes, exactly. He mentioned that last night. Uh, his his un- knowledge of Black Talk Radio network is uh, better than mine. I've been around, what, now six years, Scotty? And uh, yeah, it's been an honor, brother. But anyway, shout out to them. The uh, podcast of our conversation last night is available right now on New Abolitionist Radio. So here's the case that Sean King uh, referenced. It says, Daniel Vanskyke, an inmate at the Stateville Correctional Center in Joliet, Illinois, has performed various work assignments while in prison. In, his, in this appeal, we must decide whether Vanskyke is entitled to the federal minimum wage for his work by virtue of being an employee under the Fair Labor Standard Act. Well, first of all, I just want to say that the whole word sorcery is going on in that deeply. <laughs> like, you know, the words employee is in quotation mark, okay? Vanskyke filed a pro se complaint against the director of the Illinois Department of Corrections, DOC, alleging that the DOC used and continues to use prisoners for work assignments. The complaint alleges that Vanskyke has done forced labor as a janitor, kitchen worker, gallery worker, and niche shop peace line worker while incarcerated at Stateville and Menard Correctional Centers. It charges that DOC does not compensate workers working prisoners with equal minimum fairness employment compensation ordinarily paid to any normal employee on an hour-for-hour wage. The district court then granted the DOC's motion to dismiss pursuant to Federal RCIP 12B uh, parentheses 6, concluding that prisoners are not employees under the Fair Labor Standards Act and that neither the DOC nor the state of Illinois acts as an employer with respect to the prisoners. Moreover, the relationship between the DOC and the prisoner 
is far different from traditional employer employee relationships because certainly in these circumstances inmate labor belongs to the institution id at 1331 the 13th amendment excludes convicted criminals from the prohibition of involuntary servitude so prisoners may be required to work and this is the case that he quoted in regards to the NCAA. They threw the case out saying that the 13th Amendment allows for it. You're not an employee. You're not entitled to anything that employees are entitled to. You are literally property of the state and your labor belongs to the institution. Right. He was he was uh, involuntary servitude because obviously this guy didn't want to volunteer to uh, donate his labor without being compensated for. So 13th Amendment allows for that. So again, the 13th Amendment is pretty clear. I would suspect with at least a 12th grade reading comprehension that most people will be able to discern from the 13th that slavery was never abolished. But again, just... Just sorry to interrupt you, but I have explained it to fourth graders. So you don't even need to be a 12th grade... At 12, I've explained it to fourth graders, literally whole classrooms. I believe it's a lot of people out there that's walking around with willful ignorance or cognitive dissonance, and they understand that slavery was never abolished, but they don't want to accept that reality, especially uh, descendants of victims of, of slavery, because that would mean that all your Juneteenth celebrations have been a lie. Uh, most of your black history that you've been celebrating in the context of slavery being abolished is a lie. And a lot of people just don't want to admit that or their brains just doesn't want to accept a new reality, which is the actual reality that the United States never abolished uh, uh, slavery. And so there are several court cases in the NCAA um, has not just once in this recent lawsuit with Lawrence uh, Lawrence Livers Poppies or Livers Lawrence Poppy Livers something like that but um, he's the former student athlete where they responded the NCAA with the 13th Amendment in a motion to dismiss to get the courts to dismiss the lawsuit saying that the 13th Amendment allows for unpaid labor again how you're equating a student athlete to a person who has been convicted of a crime whether uh, whether whether it was a wrongful conviction or a duly conviction how are you equating that with a student athlete so it's a ridiculous legal response um uh but they won a prior case in a prior case that king cites in that article um when it was brought up and they cited the 13th amendment and they won citing it so again, you know, when we had to go through these judges and they have different interpretations, it's just yet, yet in the right context to reach the uh, Supreme Court, I guess. But I mean, we, you know, it should be no question, Max, that slavery was never abolished. I don't understand why people don't want to accept that reality. Yeah, it's it's amazing as I said before it's come they have two faces they say one thing to one group one thing to another group can't seem to get on the same page and in the very beginning when we listened to the video audio uh of brother powell he was talking about the government doing that taking two stances like you're either for or against slavery i mean what is the confusion here you're catering to the south in order to uh uh 
I don't know what, you know what I mean? Like consolidate power from two sides to be able to exploit the energy created by this war itself? Well, what were you doing? And that's how it sounds when I hear so many people who I know, know everything I know, if not more, and then get out there and say a different thing. So yeah, it's confusing. They, they don't stay on track. And you know, an example would be a conversation I had recently with a guy who was telling me about how the war on drugs was uh, initiated in order for the CIA I mean, to get rid of any competition real, from the real government. Real quick though, Max, our language, since Sean King brought up language, our language should be very similar, if not the exact same phrases and words and utterances of abolitionists pre-1865, like Frederick Douglass, Powell, Sojourner Truth, um, and so on and so on. If we're still dealing with the same thing, then your language should be the same. Right. Because it's the exactly. same slavery. And anything else is confusing the issue and dividing the people's attention from the importance of what's happening. Like he said, you're focusing on symptoms instead of the root. And we could use some help on the root. So, yeah, like, for example, you know, the whole... He's telling me that this was why the drug war was started when I know completely otherwise. But, you know, for, for people let's say non-black people, or as uh, the root calls them, W-Y-Y people, sometimes they need to make an explanation for something that don't include racism, because they can't face the fact that that it may be the only reason it occurred. And uh, for instance, a couple of years ago, the story came out that Nixon's top advisors uh, had reported that Nixon started the war on drugs specifically to target blacks uh, post-black liberation movement, and anti-war hippies specifically to do that to target these communities and peoples and it's been all over the news so i shared it a couple of days ago and it got like a couple hundred uh shares like people didn't know they didn't freaking know like you didn't know like really it's all been about targeting certain communities in, a, in order to keep this economic engine of modern day slavery and human trafficking going and in their preference since those who are in control are predominantly European Americans in their racist preference they would prefer that these things happen to non-white people I have nothing to add I hear that, Scotty. Uh, I'm going to put this Nixon article up on New Abolitionist Radio so people can get that, uh, check it out. Get your story straight, you know what I mean? And like I said, those people out there who are trying to avoid the aspect of racism or slavery, you're just hurting everybody, and you sound stupid. Like, <laughs> you sound real stupid in your denial. Um, any of the other stories that we have on our list today in this last 15 minutes of our uh, news time that you wanted to cover specifically Scotty? No it was nothing uh, specifically. I've been very busy man and I trust you you know on the stories I'll usually just right, refer well, to you I hear that. Thank you brother uh, I'll do some quick shots then just let people know that it's going on uh, you remember correctly we was talking about in Providence, Rhode Island. They put these cameras up throughout the city that was targeting people and uh, charging them with these excessive fines and they were making millions of dollars well, an Ohio town that was doing that now has got to pay back millions of dollars in fines collected from speed. Yeah, I saw Canada. that. Can you yeah, share so, some of the details of that? That I mean, how did that come about? I mean, you ain't got to share the whole article, but but what, was this a court ruling? What happened there? 
Uh, sure, I'll read some of it. It's not that long. A small Ohio town that lived by the red light camera could soon die by it. After a federal court ruled, the speed trap has to pay back more than $3 million in automated speeding tickets. The case of New Miami Population 2321 highlights the controversy between behind the tickets which make stoplight running motorists see red, but help keep the budgets of cities and towns in the black. New Miami will almost certainly go bankrupt if the Supreme Court doesn't reverse a lower court's ruling and spare it from the re- from refunding tens of thousands of tickets at $180 a piece plus interest. The village enacted this unconstitutional scheme primarily as a money-making venture. Josh Engel, the lawyer representing the plaintiffs in the New Miami case, told Fox News they increased their spending significantly after the scheme was put in place and it was basically used to fill holes in their budget that would traditionally have come from raising taxes. Uh, I'll put the story up on New Abolitionist Radio so people can see what's going on there. Heads up to uh, Providence. You can do the same exact thing because it's unconstitutional and this is how they ruin people's lives. You know, this $180 could mean the difference between rent and no rent for somebody. And once you hit that spiral, it's hard to get out of it. And I'm speaking to somebody who was homeless for four months not too long ago. I'm serious, man, especially if you're one of those uh, families out there or individual living hand to mouth, as they say, you know, uh, getting arrested, man, you may not get out. And that $180 is just the initial fees, because if you don't show up for court, you get a bench warrant. Right. We talked about that. If you don't show up to court, uh, there's an interest applied to it. And if, if it goes on for any length of time, you can go from $180 to $5,080 in no time at all. I'll be trying to warn young people, you know, in my family. I try to warn them, Max, don't. You don't want to get pulled over or have any interactions or have to go to court over some stupid stuff that's totally unavoidable because it can spiral out out of control. I I think that is the idea that, you know, we're beneath notice when it comes to people like this. They just look at it as a a way to create an economy that they can exploit. And uh, our plight in it doesn't matter as long as they're getting paid this was the ferguson report all over again i mean when we said ferguson is america we wasn't kidding this is happening everywhere and every way they don't care Um, if you got a light bill and a uh you know monthly rent due they don't care about your car payments they don't care about none of that yeah and and that is a big problem that not caring uh, there's another story, too, that I want to put on the list. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but there's a new study uh, as of, uh, well, it's not it's not a new study anymore, but there's a study that I want the people to be aware of that came out that says crime labs are paid per conviction. Now, you know, we've had the history of the Annie Dukins, and there's been another one recently who's affected tens of thousands of cases, but this study shows you that this is happening all across America where every aspect of the criminal justice system has been monetized, literally to create an economy. And the one that we're talking about in this instance are crime labs, where they're paid not by the hour or the case, but by whether or not somebody is guilty. I mean, if you put that kind of incentive in front of people, guess what's going to happen? Hell, you don't have to guess. You already know the nature of people when you have them in large groups like that is to be corrupt 
to do the things that are corrupt. So this is being exploited all across America with these crime labs. And Annie Dukin, as an example, affected nearly 80,000 cases. So the next time you hear somebody talk about if you are in jail or prison, you must have did something to deserve it, you remember what's happening right now with these state crime labs. Scotty? Um, yeah, I don't have anything, Max. Yeah, I don't have anything, Max. Okay. Uh, also in the news, the cop who arrested Sandra Bland was cleared of all charges. Um, all damn charges. There's also another one where a video just came out that shows these deputy, deputies watching and laughing as one of their inmates died. Uh, again, it goes along the line that they just don't give a damn watching people die in a cell and laughing about it. And the video is there to show you all of what's happening. Then there's this heroin queen pin arrested for running a massive drug ring. And it turns out that she's a New York Police Department cop running a massive drug ring. Now, her and anybody associated with her in the NYPD need to have their entire careers examined to find out if they have incarcerated, killed, or any way affected the lives of people that they have been interacting with throughout their career under the guise of law. I mean, that should be standard, right, Scotty? But it's not, apparently. Usually, they'll just target this one person, charge them, and leave everybody else to rot. So, yeah, that story's out. Then, uh, last week, we talked about this, but it is very important. There's this Philadelphia district attorney who is trying to advance criminal justice reforms. I mean, he's doing some really radical things uh, and his name is Kasner, Krasner uh, he's a candidate uh, Philadelphia District Attorney and let me pull this article open and just read a little bit of it we've got a couple minutes here Philadelphia District Attorney Larry Krasner issued a memo to prosecutors last week formalizing new policies designed to end mass incarceration and bring balance back to sentencing as a candidate Mr. Krasner rejected the death penalty, stop and frisk, cash bail, and asset forfeiture. See, just pausing right there. When I see these words, in my mind, I translate them into the violation of whatever amendment it applies to. So cash bail is Sixth Amendment. Asset forfeiture is Fourth Amendment. Stop, stop and frisk, Fourth Amendment violation. So he's talking about constitutional violations, rampant constitutional violations. But instead of calling it that, he's using other words, language, which disproportionately affect black and poor people and pledge to reform charging and sentencing practices that criminalize poverty and addiction. I mean, you got a district attorney admitting that these practices criminalize poverty and addiction. To make good on those promises, Mr. Krasner has directed his 300 assistant, man, we, we got the 300 in the house, man, coming out of there. This is Sparta. Anyway, his 300 assistant director attorneys, not to charge possession of marijuana, regardless of weight, not to charge sex workers with two or fewer arrests with prostitution, and to divert those with more than two priors to a specialized court, and to charge retail theft under $500 as a summary offense rather than a misdemeanor. Slate reports that Mr. Krasner has dropped 51 marijuana charges since January joined the mayor in advocating for Philadelphia to open a safe injection site and is suing 
pharmaceutical companies for fueling the opioid epidemic. You can read the rest of that on New Abolitionist Radio, but you can see that that is extremely important information. And uh, this is a person in need of your support. Hold him accountable to what he said, too. Scotty? Um, I think Otis wanted to uh, make a comment. Otis? Yeah, I just want to ask you something, Matt, because we talk about wording all the time. Scotty has pressed it for the last five or six years I've been listening in YouTube. And you just talked to the district attorney. Do you you made you made uh alluded to the fact that he's making those changes, but he never went on the record saying that these are constitutional violations. The reason I say that is because no matter how these people try to reform things, they are codified and not tying it back to the Constitution because that sets a legal precedent for you to go back and refute or get reparations. These people are not dumb. They know any reference leading that directly back to the gives you an end to fight them in court. So with the expression of his office, he's going to make basically what the president does with an EO, make an edict for something. But he won't ground it with his words in a, in a saying it's connected to the Constitution, and you just explained exactly why it's connected directly to the Constitution. You're, you're absolutely right. to hear him say Yep. And you know why they do that, Scott, I mean, uh, Otis, is to, to protect themselves and the people around them in the system. That's what reform is all about. It's about making change, progressive change, without holding anyone accountable for any kind of crime. Yeah, it's what happened with it. South Africa exactly. at, uh, after apartheid, so called, failed. There was no accountability. And there, but people here. Yeah, some of them are acknowledging that these crimes occurred, but again, there's no call for prosecution. Just like what happened in South Africa, some of the some you know government officials, police, guilty of some of the most heinous crimes against humanity. Oh, they just gonna get blanket immunity. We just want truth and reconciliation. Oh man, that's what reform looked like. Okay, I want to abolish abolish slavery and punish those. Uh, you know who are criminals yeah, if you look at it as slavery you have no choice but the whole people accountable for participating in a crime against humanity humanity accountable for their crimes you have no choice but to do that it goes hand in hand and that's the why they don't want to do that because when you start looking at this thing as a crime against humanity everything's got to change everything has got to change and a lot of people got to get their asses out of chairs that they've been sitting in too long and go into new chairs in places where they would have had us instead I mean I long for the day that we have our version of the Nuremberg trials and hold these people accountable and I I swear I am going to keep repeating it to remind them that they need to get this done that Human Rights Network said that we'll have those uh meetings with or those congressional hearings on the 13th amendment this year i want to see that get done because that could lead to the beginning of such a thing as our version of a nuremberg trial here in the united states so scotty is it break time yes sir all right you're listening to new abolitionist radio here on black talk radio network we're talking about modern day slavery and human trafficking as it is allowed through the 13th amendment stay tuned we'll be right back
Radio since 2008, providing new black media for the masses. Peace. Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio with Max Parthas and Scotty Reed. And tonight we had Otis joining us here in our conversation. Uh, Scotty, uh, I guess I'll, I'll go on to the next thing, unless there was something you or Otis wanted to add to that last conversation. Yeah, I don't have anything to add. All right, no doubt. Well, as I said, I was kind of speeding it through. It looks like it's almost 9.30 now, so uh, I, I won't have time to do any more of the stories. What I would suggest is you take advantage of this free month at BTR Community Join us there and go and check out uh, the historic posts and uh, articles that we share throughout that. And, you know, try something different. We're, we're building an institution and we need your help. And it's $24 a year. The first month is free. How can you lose? I mean, even if you never use it, you can say you helped to build a black institution. So there you have it. All right. So we're going to get in on our regularly scheduled segments. Uh, writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad, abolitionist in profile, and for freedom's sake, a history of rebellion. Scotty, would you like to take any one of those? Um, yes, I need to get to the page, but I'll take e- e- either one you want me to, Max. Okay. Um, well, I'm doing the same thing you're doing probably at the right at the moment <laughs> is going to the page to pull them up. <laughs> so yeah. Um, All right. Uh, I guess we'll start with the uh, abolitionist in profile. It may be a little lengthy, um, so I, I won't be able to read it all. But again, all you okay. got to do is follow us on New Abolitionist Radio. You can read it in its entirety. And I'll uh, follow that before. with the uh, writer, and then you Perfect. could close right. it out with the rebellion. Today, our abolitionist in profile is Peter Williams Jr. He's a clergyman. He was a clergyman abolitionist and opponent of colonialization. And he was born in New Brunswick, New Jersey, around 1780. His family moved to New York City, where he first attended the New York African Free School operated by the Manumission Society. He was also taught privately by Episcopal church leader, the Reverend Thomas Lyle. Williams joined a group of black Episcopalians who worshipped at New York's Trinity Church on Sunday afternoons. There lay leader John Henry Hobart, confirmed and tutored Williams as well as other future Episcopal clergymen. Hobart was officiated at Williams' wedding. When Hobart died, Williams was elected by the congregation as lay reader and licensed by the bishop. In 1818, Williams led the other African-American Episcopalians in creating their own church, St. Philip's African Church. The new church was recognized by the Episcopal Church on July 3rd, 1819 as one of the earliest predominantly black Episcopal churches in the United States. On July 10th, 1826, Peter Williams Jr. was advanced to the priesthood, becoming the second African-American so ordained. St. Philip's Church grew rapidly under Williams' leadership. When the original structure burned down in 1820, Williams, who had made the rare effort to ensure the structure, led the effort to replace it with a brick building worth $10,000. The Congregation of St. Philip's eventually included a number of prominent black New Yorkers, including James McCoon, Smith, the first black physician, Alexander Crummel, a leader 
leading educator and supporter of Liberia, Charles L. Reason, the first black college professor, and George Thomas Downing, a prominent black businessman. Many of the congregants were attracted by Williams' well-known vocal opposition to slavery and his leadership in New York City's African-American community. On January 1st, 1808, he was chosen to give the oration in New York City on the first anniversary of the abolition of the slave trade. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio remember you and salute you, Brother Peter Williams Jr. Salute. All right. Salute. So next is our writer of the 21st century Underground Railroad, and that is Eric Kelly and Ralph Lee. On March the 3rd, 2018, the Patterson, New Jersey Appeals Court upheld a lower court ruling and has vacated their 1996 murder conviction conviction based on DNA identifying another suspect. Lawyers for Kelly and Lee presented witnesses at an earlier hearing who testified about the false confessions, a leading cause of wrongful convictions, contributing to more than 25% of the 354 DNA exonerations nationwide. A forensic psychologist evaluated Kelly and determined that he is more suggestible than approximately 98% of the normal population, making him vulnerable for making a false confession during custodial interrogation. So in other words, word tricks, word tricks and, and tricking you into saying what they want you to say or, or coercing you into saying you know, what they want to hear. Uh, after what they've told you. So it says a former detective who now specializes in police interrogations identified false in the manner in which the men were questioned and pointed out discrepancies, contradictions, and the lack of corroboration in the men's statements, as well as opportunities for contamination, meaning information in the confessions actually originated from the detectives. That's what I just said. Okay. In affirming the lower court's decision reversing the convictions, the appellate court ruled our system of quote-unquote criminal justice fundamentally depends upon the soundness of the evidence presented to jurors at trial. When, as here, the soundness of that evidence and the resulting verdicts is seriously undermined by newly obtained DNA evidence of third-party guilt, we cannot turn a blind eye to the revelation and the probability that defendants who have been incarcerated since 1996 will have been acquitted. And you can read more about that uh, by going to the innocenceproject.org. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio welcome Eric Kelly and Ralph Lee to freedom. Welcome to freedom, brothers. And, and that's where I was born and raised there, Scotty Patterson, New Jersey, man. It's bad there. It's real bad. I could go on and tell so many things, but instead I'll just move on to our next segment, which is, for freedom's sake, a history of rebellion. And the anniversary of this is today, 1960, the massacre in Sharpville. In the black township of Sharpville, near Johannesburg, South African Afghanir police opened fire on a group of unarmed black South African demonstrators, killing 69 people and wounding 180 in a hail of submachine gunfire. The demonstrators were protesting against the South African government's restrictions of non-white travel. In the aftermath, 
of the Sharpeville massacre, protests broke out in Cape Town and more than 10,000 people were arrested before government troops restored order. The incident convinced anti-apartheid leader Nelson Mandela to abandon his nonviolent stance and organize paramilitary groups to fight South Africa's system of institutionalized racist racial discrimination. In 1964, after some minor military action, Mandela was convicted of treason and sentenced to life in prison. He was released after 27 years and in 1994 was the elected the first black president of South Africa. And here in New Abolitionist Radio, we remember the massacre in Sharpeville that made Nelson Mandela say to hell with that nonviolent stuff. Where are my soldiers at? You know, just the absurdity of charging a victim of a racist apartheid government with betraying that government. How are you going to charge uh, your victim with treason? That does not compute. It doesn't make sense. Well, it only makes sense if you're looking at it from the perspective of a slavery abolitionist. Then you know exactly what's going on. Slavers in South Africa owning everything, exploiting everything, extorting everything, killing everybody, doing whatever they want. Like that was their land and they were born there from day one. And in this instance, it made a brother who was a professed pacifist decide to call out the soldiers. Well, there you have it. Um, Our regularly scheduled segments, remembering our history and recalling the events that made us who we are today and helped create the world as we know it. Uh, Scotty, we don't have much time, about 15 minutes. Um, Anything you want to discuss or speak about or any of the callers, if you want to say something, just press star star to uh, unmute yourself and uh, you can ask a question or make a comment. I was going to remind people right quick, and we do have two other callers, Otis and uh, 646. Um, remind people, um, don't watch March Madness on TV. You know, sometimes I just get depressed, and I wonder about us as a people who are opposed to injustice. And sometimes we won't even do the littlest things. We won't boy. We won't even do something as simple as not watch college basketball games on TV, but we'll talk two hours about serious issues and how we being oppressed. But when we can impact in the minimalist way, I mean, not saying that the impact of, of the ratings being terrible for March Madness because billions of dollars are involved and the network stand to lose a lot, a lot of money. And we'll ha- but if we can't even do that. You know, Dan, I mean, what hope do we have, man? So I just want to remind people, I love basketball. That's my favorite sport. I was pretty good at it, too. I haven't watched a single NCAA game. Not a single one. And it's it's everywhere. So, you know, take a stand on the NCAA representing a group of educators that have been lying for 150 years that slavery was abolished and it was never abolished. And not only that, but we look at these student athletes, primarily black, Afro-descendant student athletes. We look at them as prison slaves. So, you know, come on, people. We got to make a change. Word. You said uh, 
we had a couple callers as well. Yeah, got... 646 is on the line. You're on New Abolitionist Radio. Go ahead with your question or comment. You might need to press unmute on your own phone or uh, in order to uh, speak, so you may be muted. Yep. Uh, peace, you. Brother Max. <laughs> What's happening, fam? Welcome to New Abolitionist Radio, sir. Oh, much, much appreciated, and, and peace to you, Brother Scotty, and, and to everyone. And uh, really, I had just chimed in <clears throat> off of um, the discussion around uh, Philly and the Philly DA, and um, you know, and, and I definitely appreciated those comments, and and those, and I generally appreciate those kinds of efforts. And then at the same time, you know, just um, also in, in agreement with you know, the, the comments that um, Brother Otis made around, you know, some of these questions of reform, um, et cetera, and the, the different aspects of language that come in um, around all of this. Uh, and, you know, really on, on that question, you know, we can just be sure that uh, we, we will have some very uh, clear-cut um, measures of you know, where this uh, newly elected district attorney stands on, on justice and prison slavery and the like, um, as this uh, appeals case uh, with Mumia, you know, kind of comes to a close in the next uh, month or so. So that, that, you know, should prove to be a very, a very good litmus test on, on um, all of this that's been swirling about um, around, you know, that office and what went on in Philly, uh, much of which, you know, seems very welcome of, of late, in, including those um, points that you, you outlined, uh, Brother Max. I, I wanted to share, um, if there's a minute for it or, or less than a minute, um, something that y'all may have peeped this. This, this dropped uh, earlier this month, at the beginning of this month. Um, the head of the FOP out there, you know, um, one of the most notorious of these slave catcher unions, um, you know, in the so-called union, um, the, the Philly FOP, um, released a statement in direct, uh, in direct opposition and, and, um, flat defiance of some statements that, uh, DA Krasner, uh, had made recently. Um, had, had y'all heard about that? Would, would it be all right if I just, um, uh, read a brief excerpt? But it's not unexpected because on a number of occasions, the uh, as you said, the organizations of slave catchers, their unions have come out and said the most outrageous things you can ever imagine, including threatening to kill people in a public statement. Go ahead. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, as you well know, we're, we're talking about the, the most virulent uh, goons and um, slavers that, that this place has to offer that that come together you know in these unions and then to to rise to the top of 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 such a a an organization you know one would really have to be you know um of 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 the lowest uh order and so uh with that said this is john j mcnesby um president of the uh philly fop lodge number five um, and just uh, I'll just try and excerpt it. It's a brief letter, but it was sent out, you know, to the whole FOP, um, apparently in response to um, a statement that D.A. Krasner had made regarding um, just basic uh, 
his, in his view, what were what would be some basic um, approaches as far as um, firearms and you know avoiding um, fatalities uh, during during their you know slave catching duties. Um, and so he made he made some statements to to uh, these officers, these these slave catchers, and and here's um, some of what the president McNesby had to say. He says. Um, uh, et cetera, et cetera. However, the the last, and that's in all caps, the last thing you need is to be exposed to misleading or outright false or dangerous information from all caps, any source in an apparent position of authority. Uh, unfortunately, you have been exposed to a ridiculous and dangerous presentation by the current district attorney of Philadelphia. He has intentionally sought to endanger your lives by his outrageous effort to quote unquote instruct you on the use of your firearm, you are officially urged to completely disregard his dangerous and despicable remarks. And um, there, there are a few more paragraphs. Um, you know, it basically is in that same vein. And I just wanted to highlight that because, you know, um, when you're looking at a place like Philly in particular, with with the history that it has, you know, similar to a lot of these other um, larger cities. Um, like like out here in New York, you know, um, and as we've seen out here in New York, when the um, large swaths of the slave catcher uh, force out here, occupying force, you know, very blatantly um, turn their back literally, you know, on the mayor out here, um, uh, you know, behind some, some very uh, innocuous remarks. So it's just to say that, you know, even regardless of who is, like running the 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 district attorney's office in in these um areas uh we we have to acknowledge and recognize that these slave catchers feel like you know um it, the streets are theirs and they own the night and et cetera et cetera and so they're liable to just go rogue in this way irregardless man so he negated everything that was said by Krasner and said you're officially told to throw that knowledge out the window and pull out your gun and shoot people as you see fit. <laughs> wow. Wow, man. Okay. So I, I didn't know that police union leaders had that kind of power that they could overwrite district attorneys and mayors. And Yeah, I guess they do. Thank you yeah, for sharing I mean, that, man. Uh, can you absolutely. provide us with the link to the story by any chance? Uh, if you no tag question. me, I'll put it on New Abolitionist Radio. Hey, tag, so I'll, uh, I'll greetings to up. you. Yep. Before you leave, man, tell people about um, your podcast, man. A very, very good interview he did with a recent victim of slavery and human trafficking about organizing from the inside out. But, tag, yeah, tell them about, about your podcast, man, that you just uh, published. No, no doubt. I, I'll, I'll keep it concise. I know we all have um, limited minutes remaining, but um, essentially this, this brother uh, who um, I've been working with and we've been working with out here uh, for a minute um, across the walls who uh, is now uh, working with us um, out here outside and, you know, in the, the open air prison, and, you know, as, as it's been put, um, you know, uh, we we are just essentially building around his experiences, you know, um, getting out and uh, his experiences now that he's um, back on the outside after eight years. Um, and also just, you know, what goes on 
inside, um, particularly around organizing. You know, um, he, he's been doing very strong work, whether it be around the, the recent um, rollout of this, of this uh, strangulation of the packages um, throughout the New York State um, prisons, which thankfully, you know, got suspended, quote unquote. So uh, definitely we're remaining vigilant around that because we know um, how, how quick they are to try and sneak something like this in as they did last time. But, um, you know, uh, he's been a prolific writer on the inside, even producing plays um, that, that he's written, um, you know, uh, with, with all, you know, imprisoned um, head uh, casts, um, you know, so uh, just a brother that's really been doing um, the, that important work um, from the inside and now hearing his perspective you know, um, coming back out. So uh, that that was the first installment. It's posted up on on the site. Um, you know, under uh, intercoms. Uh, that's that's the category um, that it's under. If you want to find it, and um, you know, we'll we'll be continuing that series with at least a few more um, installments with him. You know, in the in the coming days and and next couple of weeks, uh, leading toward uh, the late April. Um, welcome home celebration, which which will um, be uh, really about um, him and and another comrade of ours who who's recently come home. Thank you, Tag, uh, and uh, yeah, tag me on that, and <laughs> I know you like the way that sounds, right? <laughs> well, tag me on that, and I'll put it on New Abolitionist Radio so our listeners can check it out, and I want to hear it too. A- absolutely, I'll do that. Thank you. Uh, Otis, you had something to say in uh, final minutes? Just, just quickly, gentlemen. I want to, I want to tell you all, I am really, really proud of the work and tenacity that you and Scotty have on this subject. And I, I want to touch on something else quickly too. It's not just Philly; even Baltimore, where they caught the the eight cops, that police union also is fighting back to try to make sure there are no changes. We have to understand, and I think the common thread where you started this show with about reading the, putting the words of, of uh, Powell to life here currently in our time is really prescient because the tactics have not really changed. It's just the technology has made it much easier for the oppressor to keep us in disarray. And I'm proud of the work you two do. And I'm, I'm hoping that we can come up with some kind of way to maybe even put up a Facebook Facebook page with a closed uh, group of us so we can kind of give each other some of these tips before you go on air so we can start bringing some of these groups together because we're all fighting different facets of this and we need to make sure that we understand there's just as much energy going into stopping us. I appreciate the work. Thank you, Otis. And I have been meaning to say thank you to you, too, for your longstanding support, man. I mean, there are, have been times where things have just been so crucial, and you expect everybody's going to be sharing it and listening, and sometimes you're about the only person there. And I, I certainly appreciate that. You listened to the interview I did yesterday, as a matter of fact. Thank you for that. I tell you, Max, believe it or not, I have a few people that are working in politics around this country in several places that I'm only friends with on Facebook and they're in messaging me now about listening to this program and they never knew it was there and I've been trying to do it for what five years so I'm not giving up hope they, they I tell you what triggered a couple of them was a, the 
town hall meeting with Bernie Sanders and, and Warren. They had an economist named Derek Hamilton on there, and I had already been sharing his information. And then when they asked me about it, I told them, you can't just concentrate on one thing if you're the outsider. You have to be vigilant and be willing to learn about more facets than just one of these. You two are delving deep into this aspect, but we need to get these people that are in politics and planning boards to understand just how important this issue is. None of what they're doing is any good if they don't want to help in this issue. Amen. Uh, unless you are doing something about legalized slavery, everything else is just a stalling tactic. That's all it is. So you need to focus on this. You don't have to stop doing what you're doing. You have to understand what it is that you're dealing with. That's all. And that changes how you act and how you think and how you work. And that's the goal here of education. Thanks again, Otis. Um, any other, Anybody else want to make a final comment? We got about two or three minutes to spare, uh, and then we'll make our closing statement. So if anybody else has anything to say, uh, just press star star to unmute yourself or uh, press your home unmute button on your phone and make your question or comment. Yeah, I think we should go into final comments and go ahead and, and close it out. All right, Scotty, I just want to point out one other thing as well, that next week, I, I didn't get to touch on it this week, but next week I do want to talk about it. It's a recording from a San Diego police officer who has blown the whistle on a rewards uh, incentive that's happening in San Diego, where they are literally giving these rewards to police in order to make them arrest more people in poor communities. So it's it's incredible. That'll be next week. We'll talk about that. Uh, Scotty, your final comments for the evening? No, I just want to remind people to boycott March Madness uh, since they, the lawyers for the NCAA, have no problem um, aligning themselves with the principles of the 13th Amendment. So, hey, they've already declared how they feel, where they stand on slavery after teaching lies that slavery was abolished. So boycott March Madness. Don't watch them games on TV. Don't even talk about them with people. Don't share, you know, scores on social media. You know, it doesn't take much uh, to not be a part of the problem. So those are my final comments, Max. Thanks to everybody who called in and share information and their perspectives as well. Indeed. I'd like to say thank you to our listeners as well and callers, uh, Tag and Otis. And I'd like to say thank you to all uh, listeners and friends who have uh, lent their support to myself and my family in this time of uh, uncertainty uh, with the patriarchs of our family uh, hanging in a thread. So thank you very much. It, it, it makes a difference. Listen, you hear it all the time. It's the go-to narrative used to downplay the truth. Even activists fighting against the system recited like it was gospel, that being the number of people behind bars. At present, the number stands at 2.3 million people in prison, right? But did you know that over 12 million people go through the jails every year? 12 freaking million. But you're hearing 2.3, right? Static or transient, a bed filled with a body doesn't care what the name is, only the number. And let me tell you something else. There are prisoners, there are prisons who have government contracts guaranteeing 80 to 100% occupancy for the next 25 years. And if those beds are not filled for any reason, the public is liable for the loss in income and must pay a low crime tax to offset the prison's loss. See, this is the reason 
that abolition is a reason for a revolution so we can finally know some peace. Peace, everybody. Rise up, 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 showtime. Just lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times if it's time. Rise up, rise up, when death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you Stars our father's children When snuff porn and pedo forms Begin to get top billing Rise